What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Dr. Ted Naiman on the line. I was incredibly excited to record this conversation because I feel like, you know, I have a very high-fat stance on the ketogenic diet. He definitely is an advocate for high protein. There's been so many people on the interwebs that have, like, pitted us against one another, basically. And I've read his book. I've, I've listened to his, his work. And I felt that there was a lot of nuance and context that really needed to be fleshed out. And unsurprisingly, I felt like there's a lot of things that we do agree upon. Uh, and there are definitely some surprising things that I felt like we also did not agree on. So I feel like this was a great conversation. We got to uh, an understanding as to where we kind of recommend things. We both have a reason for why we recommend the things that we do. I really appreciate his, you know, his effort to just showcase where he's coming from, the type of people he's really trying to improve uh, and make healthy. I feel like he's got a really well-formulated approach to doing just that. Um, and like with most things in life, there's there's very much a, a sense of bio-individuality there, and we kind of dive into the nuances of that and why one would need to manipulate their macronutrient and micronutrient ratios based off of where they're at in life and where they're wanting to go. So without further ado, Really, really listen, tune in to this conversation, learn something. I feel like you'll find it incredibly fascinating. I feel like you'll definitely learn something. I certainly did. Um, and like I said, I really appreciate Dr. Ted Naiman for taking the time to do this because there's been a lot of uh, controversy over the whole high-protein versus high-fat debate within the keto sphere. So this was a very uh, much-needed conversation in my opinion. So like I said, sit back, relax, learn something, enjoy the podcast, the conversation with Dr. Ted Naiman. Dr. Ted Naiman, we're live. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderfully well. So I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. I've, I've heard you speak on the Low Carb Cruise. I've heard you speak at multiple different conferences. And I feel like this will become an interesting conversation because I've been kind of pitted by the, the whole keto low-carb community as the high-fat guy, and you are definitely the high-protein guy. So I feel like this will kind of organically turn into a, a pretty interesting uh, discussion. But before we dive into the, the specifics, I'd love to just kind of get some more background on you, kind of what got you into the space, what brought you into the profession that you're in. Just kind of give me some backstory. Oh, right. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I'm a family practice doctor here in Seattle. I've been uh, out of residency for about 20 years. So uh, just kind of down in the trenches doing primary care. And uh, I've pretty much been interested in diet and um, diet and exercise for health my whole career. I uh, was raised vegetarian, a Seventh-day Adventist uh, vegetarian, went to an Adventist vegetarian medical school in Loma Linda, this sort of famous blue zone vegetarian Mecca. And, you know, started out with sort of this high carb, low fat vegetarian approach. And uh, then in, in my residency, I was introduced to low carb by one of my patients who uh, just had some really amazing transformation with weight loss and diabetes improvement. And I've been researching that ever since. And uh, just trying to learn as much as I can about metabolism and diet and exercise and exactly how everything works, you know. So uh, I've been I've been practicing some sort of low carb diet um, for about twenty years now with myself and with my patients. That is a pretty stark contrast from the Adventist vegetarian to pretty much a low carb, higher protein style of eating. Yeah, it was it was a huge. Uh, huge change you know for me and honestly i had a, a bunch of health improvements personally as a result was there any specific health declines that you were starting to see by being vegetarian after so long uh, i had you know i had the just the worst eczema ever um and that is completely gone i haven't had it since then so i think in terms of uh in terms of health problems, eczema was definitely number one. I also had a, quite a bit of uh, almost like an OCD type anxiety thing going on as a vegetarian, which just completely melted away um, since then. And so for me, it was you know low muscle. Uh, I was skinny, fat, poor body composition. 
I would have hypoglycemia all the time. Like I would eat my, you know, cereal and juice and, you know, all this low fat stuff for breakfast. And I would be just hypoglycemic three hours later. And then it was, uh, so I would, I would say, yeah, low muscle, skinny fat, hypoglycemia, eczema, this sort of OCD anxiety thing, all of which just massively improved with really just plain old carbohydrate restriction. You know what I mean? Just eating less carbs and prioritizing protein kind of did all, uh, improved all of that for me. It's really interesting about the OCD because I used to suffer from just massive OCD, like Howard Hughes level stuff that just debilitating me. Um, yeah. And I was never vegetarian, but I was following a much higher carb approach uh, at that point in my life. So I wonder if just simply minimizing the carbs as a whole has some kind of neurological effect on that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i not sure if it's uh, the carb issue or if I had some serious nutritional deficiencies. But I remember at one point, uh, as a, as a kid, when I was a vegetarian, I mean, I would, I was literally flipping light switches on and off like 50 times or mm -hmm. something just insane, just completely clinically OCD. And at the time I didn't even know what OCD was. And then all of that just went away, but I'm pretty, pretty glad it's gone. Did you like, this is kind of off on a tangent. I didn't know this about you. So I'm, I'm curious now. I'm keen to find out more, but I did the same thing. And I feel like a lot of people with OCD, they they do that. Or at least for me, it was it was that if I didn't do that, something bad would happen to my loved ones. It's just like this weird psychological shift. I don't know why that's the way I am, like thought of things. But did you have some kind of similar uh, take on it yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, everyone with OCD is doing these behaviors in an attempt to alleviate anxiety somehow. Uh, except it doesn't work. It doesn't make you less anxious. Well, it makes you less anxious for a couple of minutes and then you get even more anxious later. So it's this, it's this uh, uh, failed attempt to alleviate anxiety somehow through some behavior and it just doesn't work and it's, it's terrible. It really is. It's, it's totally debilitating, man. Once, once you get that fixed, it's like you have your life back and everybody wants to have their life. So I'm glad that you no longer suffer from that. Oh, same to you, man. That's that's really interesting, and I, I feel the same way for you. So I want to kind of dive into different nutritional protocols here because, well, first of all, we can talk about you know your your book, the PE Diet. I've I've read that book. Uh, William Schufeld gave me a copy, and I love it. I think there's a lot of really good material in there. Um, I agree with a lot of it. So if you kind of want to just give a little overview as to what your take on nutrition is, the PE diet as a whole. And just kind of flesh that out from a high level. And then I kind of want to dive into some of the nuances if you're all right with that. Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay, so really, really big picture. The whole point of the book is that you're really eating to get two things. One is <clears throat> nutrients, which in this case would be protein and minerals. And the other is to get energy. bonds of carbs and fats. So if you really zoom out and look at what eating is, all nutrients like protein and minerals come from soil. Plants absorb nitrogen and mineral form from the soil and a bunch of other minerals that you need. And then plants also take solar energy and store it chemically as the carbohydrate, I, I'm sorry, as fat or carbohydrate high energy carbon carbon and carbon hydrogen bonds so you're what you're eating to get is protein and minerals or energy and in this book we kind of divide these two out right so the the goal in the book is to hit your protein and mineral nutrient target first so that you don't have to eat as much energy because in this country, we've stripped energy out of food in the form of refined carbs and refined fats, all your sugar, flour, and oil. And so you're getting all of this energy that's um, separated from the satiety, which comes from protein and minerals. So everyone's eating this low satiety, high energy food-like garbage in all your sugar, flour, oil. And the way you fight back is by intentionally targeting protein and minerals first and foremost and eating those 
and then only eating energy uh, in the amount of energy you need sort of on the back end. It's like target protein, minerals, and nutrients first and energy second instead of eating all this high energy, low protein processed food stuff that basically by the time you eat enough, you know, French fries to get enough protein to not be hungry, you have to massively overeat carbohydrate and fat energy, all of which you're going to store as fat, basically. Gotcha. Yeah, totally agree in the context of, you know, like most of the obesity epidemic that's happening right now is a result of people just eating, you know, and there's a lot of debate as to what's causing that epidemic, but it's pretty apparent that the general population is eating far too much heavily processed foods, high in energy they don't really expend, and they're probably deficient in quality protein sources. So kind of tackling this from like a PE diet standpoint and prioritizing the protein and nutrients seems like a pretty reasonable fix to that issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, if you if you look at hunter-gatherers, they're eating like 33% protein by calories. And in America, we're eating, you know, maybe 12.5% protein by calories. And so just off the bat, trying to get your protein percent up is pretty much going to be an instant win for almost everybody. Do you think like, what is there, um, as far as, you know, your general clientele base, like who are you typically working with and seeing benefit from this? So, you know, my whole career, I've really been focused on insulin resistance and and how it's related to all of the chronic degenerative diseases in our society like you know type 2 diabetes and obesity and uh, cardiovascular disease and alzheimer's dementia and cancer and if you i've been researching the fact that insulin resistance increases your risk for every single chronic degenerative disease you could possibly name and as a primary care doctor vast majority of what I'm doing is seeing patients with these chronic degenerative diseases, all of which seem to be downstream of insulin resistance, which is really just energy toxicity, basically overeating energy uh, when you're trying to achieve nutritional satiety. So I would say that my average patient has some sort of metabolic syndrome. You know what I mean? They have increased waist circumference, abdominal fat, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, low HDL, maybe prediabetes, like 52% of adult Americans. And then all these, uh, you know, quote unquote, lifestyle diseases like acid reflux and sleep apnea and, uh, uh, you know, these sorts of uh, insulin resistant kind of problems which are so classic and so that's my average my average client is they're they're trying to eat quote unquote healthy because everything they buy is whole grain or low fat or um heart healthy or has you know or is fortified or something blah 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 they're not eating they're not just eating bonbons and uh Oreos, you know, they're trying to eat healthy, but their diet is screwing them over bad. And every year they're just gaining one or two pounds and now they're 50 pounds overweight and they have all these chronic diseases. You know what I mean? I would say that's my prototypical person. Gotcha. Gotcha. So with that as the context, kind of seeing, you know, the popularity of keto pickup and seeing probably a, a pretty big interest in that over the past, you know, several years, uh, probably coming from your clientele base as well. Like what are some of the big, you know, loopholes or pitfalls or just frustrations you're seeing in this ketogenic movement? I mean, I feel like we can both agree on the low carb aspect being beneficial, but I feel like you are, <laughs> I would, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I have to assume that you get frustrated seeing people just chugging butter. If you're very much a pro high protein and very minimal excess energy type of stance on it. Yeah. I mean, okay. Unfortunately, I I do see a fair amount of kind of keto failures. You know what I mean? I, I have these patients come in and they've shaved their carbs all the way to zero. Like they, they might not even eat a salad because of the trace carbs in lettuce or a tomato or something. So they've shaved their carbs all the way to zero. They feel like if I could just go from 10 trace carbs in my salad, to five trace carbs, you know, by not eating salad, then I'm going to be even more successful. And they're just starving all the time. So they're just constantly snacking on 
um, cheese and nuts, and they're eating just tons of dark chocolate and macadamia nuts and, uh, you know, heavy cream in their coffee. And they're just eating basically hundreds of grams of fat every day in this attempt to get satiety. And really the big, the, the whole secret to all this diet stuff is the amount of satiety you get per, uh, per non-protein energy calorie. And the satiety from fat, it's, well, first of all, it's not immediate. You know what I mean? Like if you eat a carbohydrate, it's hitting your bloodstream a couple of minutes later and you get this big burst of satiety, actually quite a lot initially. And then a few hours later, you actually have negative satiety where you're hungrier than if you'd never eaten at all. Mm -hmm. That's the big problem with carbs is downstream hunger. The The problem with fat is that you could eat a whole bunch of it right away and that fat doesn't really hit your system for a while. So there's sort of this delayed gratification to the satiety there. And so I see people overeating um, fat if the protein's too low and then they basically might not lose any weight. I've actually watched people gain weight on a strict ketogenic diet with, you know, tracking keto levels, tracking macros, eating almost no carbs at all. I've watched people get fatter. I've watched people get more diabetic. And I just, um, I know that you... What was that last thing you said? I just lost you. Cut out there. Oh, sorry. I, I said that um, this is one of the things that I see. It's just basically people overeating fat in an attempt to get satiety. And sometimes it doesn't work if the diet's not formulated right for them i totally agree there are definitely some really poorly formulated ketogenic diets out there and it's it's hard to see people that have a lot of weight to lose just shoveling down you know sticks of butter or mct oil or you know way too much heavy cream in their coffee um so i totally get the frustration there especially when people are fearful of protein from like a gluconeogenesis aspect and they shun too much protein and they're just way under consuming that. So they're they're not really having the amino acids and the building blocks necessary to put on any lean tissue, which is gonna further downregulate their metabolism and kind of put them off worse in a worse position than they are when they started. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You got it. Exactly. So with regard to satiety, I kinda wanna dive into that because I feel like I've I've done a lot of self-experimentation, so anything that I bring to the table is going to be pretty much anecdotal and then what I've been able to see in my clients. Um, but with regard to satiety, there are several people that claim to see, you know, significantly increased satiety with a higher fat approach uh, to keto. Um, so what what is your take on, on that? Is that just like the exception to the rule or is that more common than not? No, I mean, I think that it's highly individualized and I think that the, the biggest secret is finding what gives you the very highest satiety for the very lowest ingestion of energy. And I have patients who I am 100% convinced that for them, that actually occurs in a very high carb diet that's actually low in protein and fat. So it's extremely individual. I have patients who who have more satiety eating, you know, way higher fat quantities than I eat. I have patients who have higher satiety eating a super high carb, low protein diet. Uh, and so I, I fully acknowledge that there's a ton of room for uh, individuality. And I, I honestly believe that if we knew enough about mitochondrial haplogroup groups and where your ancestry came from and how your your electron transport chain is wired, uh, if we if we knew more about how all of this works, we could actually predict better which type of macro spread would give people the highest satiety for the very fewest calories. And that would be the diet they would be the most successful on. But unfortunately we don't know any of that crap. So everyone has to just experiment on themselves and find out just kind of like you did and like I did. And I fully respect the fact that some people do get the highest satiety with this, you know, uh, paleo medicina, two grams of fat to one gram of protein thing. I, I believe people who tell me that that's their highest satiety. 
but I, I also believe people who tell me that they get the very highest satiety per calorie from a high carb, low fat, maybe even low protein vegan diet. So I'm not going to argue with anybody's success at all. I, I do think that if you just look at the population uh, on average, if you just looked across the spectrum of, of humans in general, you're going to get more success as the protein percentage goes higher. And that's why I really like to focus on you know, protein percentage because I know that's gonna make everybody probably more successful. And then they might have to figure out on the back end where their carbs and fats are gonna lie. And in, in the research I've done on you and your work, you, you tend to kind of gravitate towards the one-to-one personally, like having one gram um, protein per one gram of energy, I believe is what it, what you recommend. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of a starting point. It's sort of a maintenance starting point on a low-carb diet, yeah. And in the context of, you know, how much protein per individual, having like a one gram per, uh, per pound of desired or lean tissue, I guess, is a pretty good starting point. That, that's 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 my thought and uh, to be honest part of that i chose because it's just really easy you know you eat a gram per pound of desired body weight that's pretty easy to remember and to calculate uh, but i do think that's a reasonable starting point for most people uh, I, i'm hoping everybody's doing some sort of resistance exercise and then i do think that that's probably a good protein uh, target have you noticed any adverse effects to going much higher on the protein i mean coming from a bodybuilding background myself like there's people out there that are doing you know three to one uh grams to to each lean pound so is there any downside to over consuming protein that you've been aware of i've never seen any objective downside like you know uh, an actual medical problem or a lab problem i i do not ever see any objective um, signs that it's bad. I do uh, uh, definitely see subjectively people um, saying they don't feel good. Like, you know, if you try to eat, you know, 600 grams of protein and it's 80% of your calories, you're just going to feel weird. It's not going to be, it's not going to be great subjectively, like the way you feel. And I, I hear people say that who are just really going north of 50% of calories from protein. So, um, but but in terms of like an actual medical problem or something that I could point to objectively, I don't really see that. No. Do you see? Um, I I guess from the the opposite of the spectrum, is there like a floor that you that you see or typically recommend people not go below as far as uh, gram per pound of lean tissue? Uh, yeah, there definitely is. I mean, the interesting thing about protein is that. As you go to higher and higher and higher protein percentages, you just get thinner and thinner and thinner, uh, less fat mass. You can do this with humans. You can do this with animals. If you crank protein up to you know 50% of calories in any uh, omnivore mammal, it's just going to get really, really lean. And on the flip side, if you get your protein really low, if you're down at like 5% protein, you also get really, really lean, and, but you also have very low lean mass. So this is how the um, potato hack works. This is how the 30 bananas a day fruititarian approach works. Uh, your, your body can tell when your protein percent is ultra low in your diet, and it just kind of gives up on eating. You're like, well, okay, why bother? So people get really, really light. If you're trying to just weigh the least, you really want to be on an ultra low protein diet. But the problem with that is you have really low lean mass and that includes muscle and bone and the weight of all your organs, including your heart and your brain. And I don't think that's necessarily optimal for health or strength or um, you know, looking good naked or any of these things, which are, are I, honestly, I think, fairly important. So, so there's definitely a floor that I would tell people not to go below. I mean, you really don't, you know, the USRDA for adults is, you know, somewhere around 50 something grams. And of course I would never tell anyone to go below that. I personally think that there's no adult human who should be trying to eat less than a hundred grams a day. Um, And then the sad thing is the average American 
uh, is uh, average American males eating 98 grams of protein a day, which I think is atrociously low. Yeah, I, I am not a fan of, you know, chronically eating low protein. I will say that during a contest prep, like for me as an example, there is a period of time there towards the end where my protein goes very low, like the last three to four weeks leading up to a show where I pretty much titrate protein down. Like my last competition, I was down to 65 grams of protein a day, which is very, very low, especially for a competitive bodybuilder. However, that is in the context of, you know, just the few weeks leading up to a competition that is not optimal from a performance standpoint. My my take on that is that because I'm following a ketogenic approach, my fat ratio was very high. I was in more of an anti-catabolic state for that finite period of time. I would never suggest anybody be that low in total protein for you know months on end. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, that makes sense. That's totally understandable. What about calories in general? I feel like that is a discussion that's getting a lot of... Uh, you know, interest within the keto circles, but just, I mean, that, that's a topic of discussion amongst all dieting circles. I feel like in the keto space, people are, are tending to, you know, turn the other way when it comes to calories. And I feel like you and I could probably agree on the fact that calories do matter and they are a very important variable to take into consideration. Well, okay. I, I definitely think that non-protein calories or energy calories is a huge big deal. And absolutely you have to pay attention to non-protein or energy calories so i i think that uh, that completely counts but where, where where calories break down for me is protein so i could take anyone who's overweight and leave them in the exact same calories they're eating now but make that you know 80 90 100 protein and they're just going to immediately have this really dramatic body composition change with higher lean mass and lower fat mass. And every uh, insulin resistance parameter you can measure is going to get better. And their health is going to get better. Everything's going to get better on the exact same calories. So this is why I have a problem with calories. The only reason I don't like calories is because of protein. I feel like protein calories shouldn't even count. I mean, like it shouldn't be... It, it, they should be exempt from calories basically is, is what I'm saying. So I, I, I do think calories are important. I think calories matter, but they sort of break down when you're talking about protein versus non-protein energy, which is kind of why I fractionate out those two in, in the books so much. So I kind of want to dive into a performance section here because I feel like in the context of, you know, taking on a client that is just morbidly obese uh, it has a lot of body fat to lose. Gravitating towards a higher protein uh, makes a ton of sense. Actually, I, I want to ask you one quick question on that. So I've noticed in the people that I've worked with, if they're coming from a carb-heavy approach to food, they they see some initial benefit from having many of their initial calories come from dietary fat because I feel like it's a smoother transition to learning how to you know, train the body to to oxidize fat as a fuel source if there's quite a bit of dietary fat coming in. But then as soon as they make that adaptation, then I like to titrate protein up and kind of figure out what their protein threshold is, so to speak. Whereas if you just transition straight from a high carb to a very high protein minimal fat, it, it tends to be a little bit more miserable just in the, the experience I've had with clients. Um, do you think there's any, like have you noticed any of that yourself, like transitioning people from a, a carb-dependent diet to more of a high protein or high fat, like transitioning, is there a benefit to, you know, titrating that fat up initially and then titrating protein up? Or what have you noticed there? Yeah. I mean, I think historically I've done the same thing is have people eat higher fat initially when they're transitioning and then trying to, you know, shave off some grams of fat when they're, um, you know, losing weight. And, and I think that you're probably right on there. And I think a lot of low-carb advocates are recommending the same thing. Uh, although, I, to be honest, I don't know how much of that is necessary metabolically versus just behaviorally people want to be able to eat more. Um, I mean, if you just dove right from a standard American diet into a you know, protein-sparing modified fast, the amount you're eating is so tiny by comparison that... 
I think people would just freak out. <laughs> it's also so restrictive and so painful that it's just mind blowing. And so I, I think you've got to take baby steps and sort of progress it. Like you said, okay, let's start with just eating less garbage. And then we'll worry about, you know, rebalancing protein and fat um, to maximize satiety, maximize fat loss. And that's probably going to involve eating fewer fat grams. So I, I totally agree with gradual progression and, and maybe eating less carbs is step one. And so I'm kind of doing the same thing. So I'm right, I'm right there with you on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I think, you know, in the context of someone that's trying to lose a ton of weight, you know, I feel like our recommendations are pretty, pretty well aligned. I mean, focusing on getting quality protein sources in and not because if you have a ton of body fat to lose a ton of adipose tissue, it doesn't really make sense to consume a ton of dietary fat if your body is adapted to burning your stored fat. So I feel like we can both agree there that you don't need to prioritize eating you know, tablespoons of butter if you have a bunch of fat to lose. I think what, where I want to kind of take things now and, and get your opinion on is from a performance standpoint, like for someone that is metabolically sound, they have a good solid foundation, you know, uh, from like a caloric baseline standpoint, they're really just trying to maximize performance. Because I feel like if you're not there and you're just needing to lose a bunch of body fat, simply losing weight overall is going to have the, the classic 80-20, you know, analysis benefit towards your overall health. Like it's going to improve your insulin markers, your blood glucose, I mean everything. Um, when it comes to like performance and you're kind of already in a good starting position, I'd like to see if, you know, what, what's your take on macronutrient ratio recommendations there and does that offer a nuance that would change what those recommendations are? Well, okay, so part of the problem for me when it comes to fat um, intake is that if you really look at like fat that has radio labeled carbons and you and you trace this and you look to see how long it takes for this fat to um, be absorbed from the you know the lumen of the small intestine and travel through the wall of the small intestine and get repackaged as chylomicrons and then um, get dumped out in the thoracic duct and go to your liver and then end up in your adipocytes and blah, 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 blah. There's such a massive, massive delay between when you eat fat and when it ends up anywhere that statistically speaking, I mean, within a P of less than 0.05, statistically speaking, every single bit of fat you eat ends up being stored in your fat cells. And it's after it's gotten there that it's released into your bloodstream that you're really, really burning it. You know what I mean? So pretty much all ingested fat becomes stored fat, and then you're using it downstream from that. So I find that eating fat might help people uh, with satiety in terms of just the incretins that are secreted from the small intestine because you have you know fat in there um, or some other factor. But I don't know that you necessarily uh, get an immediate performance boost from eating fat versus the fat that's already on your body if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah. so I usually don't use fat as a performance enhancing kind of tool because I feel like it's, it's so much downstream time-wise that the fat is going to be utilized, that it's not as critical as like protein and carbs. That does make sense. I have a theory that the longer you are strictly adapted to burning fats, like for me, for instance, I've been strict keto for five or six years now. I feel like my my body's ability to tap into that stored fat and use it is much more efficient than someone that's kind of, you know, always in purgatory limbo, shade of gray, going back and forth from carbs, fats, and proteins, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh no, I totally I totally believe that. Now the 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 difficulty therein is that most people aren't going to be strict keto indefinitely like that. So I I mean I I don't look at it as a sacrifice, obviously, because I don't miss these carbohydrates, but someone that, that inherently knows they're not going to be able to stick to a very strict uh, ketogenic, you know, high-fat ketogenic diet, they're probably not going to really see the full benefit 
of being able to tap into those stored, you know, fat droplets as a fuel source, basically. Um, so in that context, I could see them benefiting from a performance standpoint, you know, by using carbs. But is it possible, and I don't really know of any research articles on this, um, but is it possible for someone like me that wants to stay strict keto, there is a inherent benefit to that. And like from an energy standpoint, I should be, I mean, all my bases should be covered. Well, I think that the the longer you make your body accomplish all the uh, um, things you want to accomplish in a very low carb environment and without carbohydrate availability, I think you're just going to get better and better and better at fat oxidation. And and it's like adapt or die. Now your body has to do everything you're demanding of it without any carbs. And so I think you do get a huge upregulation of everything, every step involved in fat oxidation. So I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think you do get really, really efficient at utilization of fat and getting a ton of energy from fat rapidly. Um, I, I don't know if, um, I'm not sure. And for someone as lean as yourself, you know, who, uh, has tons of muscle and would probably have really good glucose disposal. I think you could probably do some sort of cyclical keto at this point and still be, um, and, and still do just as well. I'm guessing, but I don't really know. Have you ever experimented with, uh, some sort of carb ups, like a lot of, uh, cyclical keto people? I haven't in the past several years. I mean, I did when I was kind of playing around with low carb and keto in the beginning. Um, and, and originally, like I've been bodybuilding for 10 years now, the first five years was following a traditional, you know, quote unquote, bro diets of, you know, high carbs at times, uh, very high protein and very minimal fat. So I, I played around with a lot of these different manipulations then. But since adopting a ketogenic lifestyle, I've noticed so much more benefit by staying strict keto, like a lot of the the knocks that people have against strict keto from a bodybuilding standpoint, such as the ability to get a pump, have vascularity, lose body fat, like I just have not suffered from. Like I'm, I got my pro card last time I competed following a strict ketogenic protocol with very high dietary fat and actually very minimal protein, uh, which was totally counter to any of the competitors that I was up against. Um, so I feel like what I've done and, and continuing to do has worked really well for me, but I feel like that level of uh, you know benefit from that is only amplified the longer you stay strict keto. So I could probably totally get away with eating carbohydrates. I never was insulin resistant. I mean, I could eat carbs and, and tolerate them very well. I just prefer the benefit that I get from not eating them. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah I, I get it. What about, because like one of the 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 main reasons that I, I've kind of gravitated towards this style of eating, especially in the context of you know bodybuilding, natural bodybuilding, is from a hormonal standpoint. I see, you know, so many of the competitors that I've competed against in the past that are following this traditional diet, a very high protein, low fat, they have pretty significant hormonal uh, down regulation. I mean, I had a natural bodybuilder on the podcast the other week, and I mean, like. He's been prepping for several weeks. There's no libido. I mean, all testosterone has tanked. And I think in the context of natural bodybuilding, when calories are as low, no matter what diet you're going to do, you're going to see a down regulation there. However, I feel like following a ketogenic protocol with adequate dietary fat is probably the single best thing you could do to minimize any adverse effects in that regard. Oh, wow. And that's really interesting. And I have no experience with any um bodybuilders who are doing a strict ketogenic approach i have uh i have uh, physique competitors who are natural who are doing the standard approach and i have definitely seen you know testosterone levels under 100 in men uh you know in the week or two before a show i mean it's just atrocious it's really bad and so i don't know um, I really free of knowledge as to uh, how well you're protected against that on this ketogenic approach, but it sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, for me, <laughs> I listened to your podcast, uh, you know, in collaboration with William Schufeld, Ted Naiman, or not Ted Naiman, but uh, you, you are Ted Naiman, but uh, Paul Saladino and Chris Bell. 
and y'all were talking about body butters. There's so many times I wanted to jump through the audio and, and put my two cents in there because it's it's funny because I think I see so many people, you know, they look at body butters, they see these these magazine covers and they want to emulate that, they want to get there, you know, have six pack, et cetera, et cetera. And they they look at these these body butters as the poster board for what health is. And it's it's hard for me to see this because you know that's where I came from and that's when I was at my unhealthiest. Uh, you know that that's healthy compared to someone that's morbidly obese and 500 pounds and has all kinds of you know chronic illness. But in the in the context of true health, that is not near the the picture that I want to paint for people. And I feel like having transitioned to more of a ketogenic approach to bodybuilding by having adequate protein uh, and enough dietary fat that's really really improved my performance more so than anything I'd ever done and manipulated in the past uh, from a hormonal standpoint from a satiety standpoint and also from a reverse dieting standpoint because when you're dieting down uh, and your your calories are very low you down regulate your metabolism it's just part of it and a lot of competitors when they start adding these calories back in and reverse dieting especially if it's coming from high carb sources they almost inevitably put on a ton of you know, unnecessary body fat and their leptin and ghrelin hormone levels and their their sexual hormone levels are all out of whack. Uh, and it just takes a long time to fully equalize that. Whereas with a ketogenic approach, by never dipping too low from a dietary fat standpoint in the first place, I'm able to mitigate pretty much all of those adverse effects, which has made the whole sport of bodybuilding much more sustainable and enjoyable. Yeah, the, I mean, that's all just super interesting to me because I I see these people with the standard approach and, you know, maybe a month out from from show, from their show, they're ultimately uh, super healthy. They have, you know, insulin levels one, their A1C is, you know, 4.5. They're just, uh, their triglycerides are 30. I mean, they're just extremely healthy, but they still have testosterone, libido, and they're feeling pretty good. But man, you go, you get like three to one week out. Uh, they feel like they're going to die. Their testosterone is uh, drops out of triple digits, and everyone's just like crawling by their eyelids. And so, <laughs> anything. I think you're a totally an enigma because I have I have no um, clinical experience with anyone doing what what you're doing. Everybody I have is doing, you know, the the. Peak week is like, you know, the starting a couple of days out, it's, you know, 800 grams of carbs a day. Uh, you're uh, eating no fat at all. And it's just the opposite of what you're doing. So it's all really, really, really interesting to me. That's why I really wanted to get you on here because I feel like, like I, I get, I'm not near as active on Twitter as you are, but I see so many people, you know, pegging us up against each other and, and, you know, saying something that I've, post it and they ask you about it and vice versa and you know like somebody posted about the keto brick which I make and you were talking shit about that and I'm like I think the context is just off here for everybody let's just dive in and have a conversation because I feel like you know with what you and I've already said if someone is just coming from a carb heavy diet to you know a, a keto diet having a higher dietary fat intake to make that transition smoother makes a lot of sense so we can both agree there and I feel like once that level of fat adaptation has occurred and people are efficient at tapping into their stored body fat, titrating that protein up and making, you know, that macronutrient a priority is is the way to go. And I feel like we can both agree there. Um, I feel like from a performance standpoint, there's just so much little nuance and different ways of doing things. Because, yes, there's there's a ton of people that are incredibly lean out there that have followed a very high-protein, low-fat uh, a protocol and they're, they're able to get very shredded but there's not a whole lot of you know even anecdotal evidence there, there's certainly not any research-backed evidence of people that are doing kind of what I'm doing in the space with regard to getting down to you know three or four percent body fat while maintaining hormone levels in which my dietary fat intake is consisting of about 80 percent of my calories which has worked really really well for me and it hasn't negatively impacted my ability to get down to that low body fat in fact i would argue that it's enhanced my ability to do so yeah and, and i you know i totally believe you i'm a member of this uh, ketogenic bodybuilding facebook group and i see what people are pulling off uh in these you know strict ketogenic uh 
states and and i think there's just really something to it and it's all very interesting to me because i don't have a lot of um clinical experience with that because because people like you are you know few and far between so i think it's really cool and i think it's really interesting and somebody needs to be studying you <laughs> and all, and anyone else who's doing this approach just to see where all the magic is happening I appreciate that. I really do want to to make it a point to get this information out there because I see so many people, like we were just saying, you know, just screw up their metabolism and their hormones. And and when you screw up your metabolism, it doesn't really fix itself overnight. Like that's something that can take years to fully correct. And it's hard to see so many people chase this, you know, dream of looking a certain way and reaching that goal, but at the expense of their health when there's a much healthier, more sustainable, enjoyable way of going about it. Uh, so that that's kind of why I'm, you know, trying to scream from the rooftops what I've learned over the years. Um, but I feel like you're doing a very good job and eloquently portraying the importance of protein and prioritizing that as a macronutrient because I do agree with you wholeheartedly in that many people are not consuming enough protein and too many people, especially within the keto sphere, are scared of protein, which is not really optimal either. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, I just think that's not helpful. What about from like a, a lab, you know, blood draw standpoint? I think, is there anything that, that you would recommend people look at with regard to, you know, if they're not really sure of what to do from, uh, you know, macronutrient standpoint? Like if, if they're taking in a lot of dietary fat and they've got high blood glucose and really high lipid scores, like what what would you say to that person? Well, uh, so a couple things. First of all, it, I love triglycerides. Like fasting triglyceride is a phenomenal marker for just being over fat, right? If you, you really want your fasting triglycerides to be ideally below 100, uh, elite would have to be. What was that last thing said, below 100? Oh, right, right, right. You really want to be below 100 on a good fasting triglycerides, you know, 12 hours fasting, no coffee, just water, no calories, and elite would be below 70 at least. And what triglycerides are, are is fat energy in your bloodstream that has no place to go because your fat cells are refusing it, right? Because they don't want more fat. Um, your muscles are refusing the fat energy, your fat cells are refusing it. You're basically over fat. And triglyceride correlates really, really well with insulin resistance and over fatness and visceral fat and all of this. So anyone who's got high triglycerides basically has energy toxicity where there's too much energy in their body. And what you really want to do is ingest less energy. That's definitely going to be carbs and probably fat. both. And so that's someone who really wants to look at their non-protein energy intake and try to shave that down um, in a sustainable way. I don't I don't want anyone eating a zero fat diet. I also don't know that I would recommend a zero absolute zero carb diet, but you definitely want to get both of those down. You know what I mean? Um, I found that uh, if your fasting blood sugar is too high, a lot of times that means that you overate fat grams the day before. So like if you're a type two diabetic and you eat a bunch of carbs, your blood sugar immediately goes up. You know, an hour later, your blood sugar is super high and everyone sees that on their glucometer and they, they get that, they understand that. But a lot of pre-diabetics or diabetics wake up in the morning, look at their blood sugar, and they're like, wow, why is my blood sugar 150? I didn't eat any carbs yesterday. I didn't eat any carbs overnight. I didn't eat any carbs this morning. What's going on? This is typically over-ingesting fat grams the day before. So if you eat a whole, you know, if you drink a gallon of heavy cream today, tomorrow morning, you'll wake up with the highest blood sugar you've ever seen. You know, it's just, this sort of downstream response to acutely um, filling up your fat cells and the, the blood sugar will go up and that's a really good thing to be tracking just to sort of titrate your fat intake. You know what I mean? Do you notice any increase in blood glucose from like if, if fat macros are held constant, but I titrate protein up, for instance, do you notice a gradual increase in, in blood glucose there? 
Well, definitely in type one diabetics. So uh, protein um, is going to raise glucagon and without the concomitant insulin increase, you're definitely going to see blood sugar go up in anyone who has any amount of insulin deficiency. So that could either be a type one diabetic or a burned out type two who has less beta cell mass and they can't mount an insulin response to that. So yeah, I will definitely see blood sugars going up in um, type one diabetics or type two with beta cell burnout. I'm still not convinced that that's necessarily a bad thing. And I still want my type one diabetics to prioritize protein and then just dose for that with insulin. But anyone who has intact pancreatic function should not see their blood sugar go up at all, no matter how much protein they eat. So the main kind of red flag you would you would say is seeing both fasted blood glucose and uh, triglycerides above 100 simultaneously. Right. That's the worst. That's where you know you know you're over fat. You know you have no more room to store energy. You need to be on a very low energy diet, which is typically way less carbs and probably also less fat. Although for the average American, their problem isn't isn't eating too much fat. It's eating too many carbohydrates. I mean, your average American male is eating 98 grams of protein a day. Female, it's 68 grams of protein. They're both eating around 100 grams of fat and then about 300 grams of carbs. So the problem here isn't really the fat intake, you know, 100 grams of fat, that's a pretty reasonable fat intake. In my opinion, I just feel like the carbs are way too high and the proteins too low. And so what you're really trying to do is rebalance those. And of course, when you increase protein, you get so much satiety from that, that it's easier to eat less carbohydrate at that point. Yeah, I totally agree there. I feel like for you know the general population that's over consuming processed carbs if they just took those calories from carbs and you know initially evenly distributed them between protein and fat and then kind of checked markers along the way and were you know cognizant of what their satiety was and then they could titrate protein up or fat down as they went i think that would be the, like a huge step in the right direction yeah yeah absolutely what about the 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 nutrient quality like micronutrients like kind of diving into what these macronutrients are consisting of you know like do you put much emphasis on the types of protein you're you're trying to get in or are you pretty much just looking at it as a macronutrient standpoint well i'm i'm really really concerned about minerals because we have a ton of studies that show that if you're low on any particular mineral you're just going to keep eating until you get it so I think that it makes a lot of sense to target minerals. Luckily, those track with protein in most real foods. So if you're just eating high-quality um, protein sources, you're probably going to get all the minerals you need. But I think for that reason, I would rather see people eat uh, nutrient-dense food instead of like just whey powder all day long. You know what I mean? Like I think you'd be better off eating um, pastured eggs and grass-fed beef and wild-caught fish and seafood and uh, green vegetables and all of these protein sources instead of, uh, you know, your processed pea protein or your hemp protein or your whey protein, which is probably not going to be as good from a micronutrient standpoint. I don't think that anybody needs to necessarily track their micronutrient intake uh, because it's, it tends to just follow protein in these properly raised animal foods. But uh, I am you know, always concerned about people getting adequate um, mineral intake. Totally agree there. I, f I can't tell you the last time I had most of my calories come from a, a whey shake, but I feel like that's a big mistake people are making. Right. Um, which is one, one definite step in the right direction that I feel like people are prioritized in the you know, keto carnivore, low carb space. I feel like they've placed the priority on nutrient dense foods, the whole foods. And that's one thing that, that you've always said that I agree with is trying to eat the whole animal, whether it be like the whole vegetable or the whole animal, you know, like the, like the seafood, getting the mussels and the clams and stuff of that nature. Right, right. Exactly. What about the, uh, just out of curiosity, what is your take on zero carb or like no vegetation because carnivore is really hot right now i'm not carnivore per se i'm carnivore-esque i guess but do you feel like there's any any deficiencies from like a mineral 
or micronutrient standpoint uh, from not having that vegetation? Well, I, okay. I have a couple concerns there. I mean, like I love carnivore diets for someone with some autoimmune disease who's just trying to eliminate any potential plant toxin. I think that's smart. I think that makes a lot of sense, but I think that every pure religious carnivore out there could probably throw in, they could find some sort of plant food that would not impact them negatively that would probably be beneficial like is there any reason why your sean bakers of the world could not eat you know 95 percent of their calories from ribeye and then like a cucumber or uh you know something like some sort of benign low sugar fruit there's there's basically no reason why you couldn't eat some of these foods they're not going to have anything toxic there and the idea is if you broaden the foods that you're eating, you're probably going to do better from a micronutrient spread. You're definitely going to do better subjectively in terms of your diet being less restrictive. It's easier to maintain long-term. The less restrictive your diet is, the better your long-term adherence is going to be for almost everyone. And so I think the game is to maybe start out with this carnivore template and then add in foods that are probably beneficial and not going to do anything bad to you. So I really, I feel like carnivore is a good elimination diet, but you don't really want to stay there because nobody's convincing me that there aren't at least a few plant foods that these people could add back in with no problems whatsoever. And you only just stand to benefit. So that's kind of my take on the, on the carnivore thing. It's like, why not? figure out what you can add back in that's almost certainly going to be a good from a sustainability point of view and a micronutrient array point of view and it's probably not going to do anything bad to you i don't disagree with that at all i feel like there's a lot of people that do have autoimmune issues that that may want to stay strict carnivore but there's significantly more individuals that are totally fine to eat these foods i'm not convinced that there's any inherent performance benefit that comes from them per se but I feel like having just a vast array of what your options are could probably help from a sustainability standpoint uh, and then also just from a psychological standpoint Um, but I'm not necessarily convinced that there's any like most micronutrients are in much denser supply in like organ meats for instance than in most vegetable sources there is an argument against vegetables from like a like a phyto toxin standpoint but i'm not really sure where i sit on that either i think i think in the plant world i'm mostly mentally picturing someone eating low sugar fruit and and i and i and i i kind of think about it this way you know it's like humans definitely evolved from frugivores so there's no question we've been eating fruit since forever and the, the fruit is a part of the plant that actually wants to be eaten. So it makes sense that it would be um, less toxic. And so I, I also think that, um, you know, if you, if you were a hunter-gatherer, we just dumped you off in the wilderness, you're basically going to kill an animal, eat the whole thing, but you're sure as hell going to eat any fruit that you happen to find. And so it does seem to be, like just from an evolutionary perspective, maybe not a crazy terrible combination yeah totally agree what do you think about vegetables from a uh like an absorption of nutrients in the meats and and proteins and fat standpoint do you feel you know having a large portion of greens for instance in tandem with your meats and fats is going to inhibit the full absorption of those nutrients or is it going to have any effect effect whatsoever well okay to be honest i think vegetables are kind of a joke like vegetables are a joke. All of our vegetables we 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 created in the last thousand years. Like we took this brassica species, this wild mustard, which just happens to be one of the few plants that humans can eat in its entirety and manage to detoxify it. And then we crossbred the hell out of it. You know, if you select for the terminal buds, you get broccoli, and the lateral buds, you get Brussels sprouts, and the flower buds, you get cauliflower, and blah, blah, blah. We basically manufactured every vegetable in the grocery store within the past thousand years. And, you know, we didn't have kale in this country until 200 years ago. 
the potato first hit Europe 400 years ago. I mean, all these vegetables are hyper modern. We've created them all. They're pretty much a joke. Nobody was flying in kale from Southern California in the wintertime and making a kale smoothie. And there's, you know, a lot of toxins, a lot of anti-nutrients, a lot of oxalates. Uh, probably nobody needs to eat them. I think they're just like this sort of filler type thing. And so when I'm talking about plant foods, I'm, I'm really more thinking about things like nuts and seeds and fruit. Um, nuts and seeds, of course, not wanting to be eaten, but fruit probably wanting to be eaten from a plant standpoint, if you know what I mean. But yeah, vegetables are kind of like, I'm just like meh whatever on vegetables, to be honest. Yeah, I think, I think it's a pretty good way to, to approach it. I feel like people just need to experiment with it and see how their body tolerates it uh, from like an energy standpoint, a digestion standpoint. Because some people, I mean, they get really bloated uh, and yeah. they have these issues with them. So, I mean, in that case, it, it makes sense not to really overconsume them. But if it if it doesn't have a negative impact, then I don't feel like people should be scared of it. Same, similar to, you know, protein. Like, I don't feel like people should be scared of overconsuming protein because overconsumption of protein is not really easily done. Right, right. That's true. So I don't want to take up too much time here. I know you, I know you got a busy schedule, but what what is one thing that you're particularly excited about just in the research or what you're doing personally? Like, what are you adamantly trying to learn as much about right now and, and feel could be a, a big moving, shaking piece in the in the space? Oh, wow. I mean, so I am really fascinated by mitochondria, to be honest. And if you look at every single Every person who's pre-diabetic, diabetic, has diabetic parents, overweight, out of shape, chronic disease, the one thing they all have in common is they're worse off from a mitochondrial standpoint. That you know, mitochondria make up 30% of the weight of a normal, healthy human. And all of these people who are you know genetically overweight or on the diabetes spectrum. They have smaller mitochondria. They have worse mitochondria. They have lower mitochondrial function. They have um, everything you can measure about mitochondria, the mitochondria size, function, contents, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, the quantity of mitochondria, everything about their mitochondria is smaller and worse. And the only way fat, ever exits your body is via your mitochondria like physically fat cannot leave your body without it being burned into carbon dioxide in your mitochondria and then exhaled and so there's a lot of chicken and egg in, in terms of do these people have broken mitochondria and then all the fat just accumulates and they can't burn it or did they poison their mitochondria from energy toxicity from overeating, um, you know, carbs and fats, and basically, then they busted their mitochondria, and now they can't burn fat. Either way, I think this mitochondrial health is just absolutely crucial. You have to figure out some way to get more mitochondria and better mitochondria, and it seems to be that when you uh, demand more energy in your body, your body immediately responds with newer and better mitochondria. Anytime your energy requirement goes up and your energy availability goes down, you get more and better mitochondria. And, and you accomplish that by basically exercising a ton and then eating less non-protein energy, your carbs and fats. And so I'm, I'm really geeked out on anything that improves mitochondrial health and anything that breaks your mitochondria. And <clears throat> what we know is that metabolic oversupply, basically eating too many carbs and fats together, can literally break your mitochondria. You have this mitochondrial fission where the mitochondria split up in an attempt to be less efficient. And then you get all these mutant mitochondrial DNA from reactive oxygen species. And you pretty much just it's this downward spiral because it's like you overate energy and broke your mitochondria and then your you don't have mitochondrial function to burn fat and you just get fatter and then your mitochondria are more broken and it's this downward spiral of energy toxicity and you seem to be able to reverse that 
by number one, ingesting less energy, which is carbon fats, and number two, demanding more energy expenditure, which is basically high intensity, high power output exercise, either resistance or cardio. So I'm, I'm really all in on this mitochondrial thing. I'm also fascinated by the mitochondrial haplogroups and how various um, genetic differences in mitochondrial DNA was influenced with uh, the humans' um, uh, distribution around the globe. And like, you know, the less coupled mitochondria are at the higher and lower latitudes where you are supposed to eat more protein and fat and you have loosely coupled mitochondria so you're generating more heat to stay alive versus equatorial regions where people have more tightly coupled uh, mitochondria and they literally do better on very low fat very high carb diets and i think that we just don't know enough about all of this and we need to know more so i'm always researching anything i can find on this topic that's incredibly fascinating i mean just speaking anecdotally again when I do a, a contest prep, for instance, I'm obviously going through a period of lower caloric ingestion, and I'm, I'm still demanding a lot from my body. And each time I cycle through, like I'll do a, a contest prep every two or three years as a natural bodybuilder. It's not really healthy to do it every year. But every time I go through that cycle, I have more lean mass to start with. My metabolic demands are higher, um, and I'm able to, to get leaner while sustaining that same lean tissue or building lean tissue much more efficiently every single time I cycle through. So over the past several seasons of competing for me, it's possible in light of what you just said that I've basically improved my mitochondrial baseline starting point each time because I'm, I'm asking more of my body in the context of lower food you know, as I cycle through a prep, and I'm basically just improving my baseline each time I go through. Yeah, absolutely, right? Which is a, which is awesome, which is amazing. That's the holy grail. And it's interesting because I feel like many people don't they they don't view health through the lens. I mean, they they look at that as like yo-yo dieting, which is is not yo-yo dieting at all. But they they just want to maintain or they want to be in a chronic building phase and a or a chronic cutting phase. Like I feel like people would benefit immensely if they looked through health with a more holistic lens of really optimizing for building and then therefore optimizing for cutting. But having this, you know, cyclical approach to it is going to be putting yourself in a much better position metabolically, hormonally, mitochondrially speaking. I mean, it's just much better, I think. Yeah. And, and I think everything we do has to be this cyclical approach. You know, it's like fasting and feeding and we have high energy times of the year and low energy times of the year. And I think that that's just uh, part of what your body's expecting. Absolutely. Well, maybe not um, uh, sta uh, you know, stage prep. That might be a little bit more extreme. But, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely what your body is expecting to begin with. Totally, totally. Well, Dr. Ted Naiman, I really, truly do appreciate the time. I've learned a ton, as I expected to. And I just, like I said, appreciate your stance on this. I feel like we have... Uh, a lot more in common on our views towards macronutrients and overall health than people on the interwebs would like to give us credit for. But uh, again, thank you for taking the time to jump on here. Where can people go to find out more about you? Okay, yeah. Well, I'm on Twitter at Ted Naiman, and uh, I've got a Facebook group, uh, Burn Fat, Not Sugar. And of course, uh, along with William Schufeld, we wrote this book called The P.E. Diet. And the best place to pick that up is at thepediet.com. Awesome. I will certainly link out to all those and make it easy for people to find you. I have read The P.E. Diet. I do recommend it. It's a great read. And hey, you have a ton of really great illustrations, which you all made yourself, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm like sort of a nerd that way. So <laughs> I'm always making these crazy little graphics. Well, keep doing what you're doing because I feel like they, they resonate with a lot of people very well and you're you're spreading the good message there. Well, awesome. T same to you. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Have a good one.